The Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast is sponsored by Prairie Care. You know, going through the process of getting help with your mental health can be very overwhelming. I definitely know that from firsthand experience. Prairie Care can help guide you through it and get you in touch with the help that you need. They've been offering mental health services to all ages in the Twin Cities of Minnesota since 2005. Whether you're looking for clinical services, a specialty outpatient program, or a more intensive level of care like inpatient treatment, Prairie Care has you and your family covered. Visit prairie-care.com to learn more. That's prairie-care.com. Hello, my friends, and welcome into another episode of the Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast. My name is Brian Pyatt. I'm your host, and I am just so glad that you're here holding space as always for however you are showing up right here, right now in this moment. Really looking forward to spending this time together and looking forward to, to sharing this conversation with all of you today. I am I'm talking this week with Dr. Courtney Burnett. And Dr. Burnett was diagnosed with a brain tumor at the age of 29 and is currently living with an incurable and rare form of brain cancer. She is a medical physician. She is a speaker. She is the author of the book, Difficult Gifts, and also writes a blog called Elephant Lotus Brain Tumor. And here on this episode, uh, Dr. Burnett talks about and shares the story of how she was diagnosed with a brain tumor while overseas working in Thailand. She talks about how getting diagnosed with a brain tumor has actually improved her mental and emotional health, which is a really, really powerful statement. She talks much more about why that is, talks about living life in the present moment, her perspective and thoughts on death and God, and and much more. Was was really, really honored to be able to sit down and have this conversation with Courtney, and I hope that there is something in here, my friends, that you, that you are able to take with you moving forward that serves you. And as always, encourage you to just go ahead and leave the rest. Leave anything that does not serve you. So let's go ahead and begin sending love to each and every one of you out there today. Hope you're being gentle with you. And once again, a big, big thank you to, to Courtney for joining us here on the podcast. So let's begin. Thank you so much for for saying yes to this and, and being willing to sit down and, and have a chat. Well, thank you. It's it's always an honor and really always a surprise when people I've never met reach out and say yeah. that somehow what I've been through is is interesting and helpful and it's it's kind of the fuel I need to keep going in my own journey. Yeah. You've done some podcasts, so you've you've gotten. Um, I would imagine over the years you've shared your story a number of times. I have. Yeah. I have. It's, uh, I've done a couple of podcasts, but not many. So this is exciting and, and new. Yeah. Um, I've started to speak about my story at different events around the world, which 
every single time is just blows my mind completely. Yeah. It's very surreal. Yeah. Kind of incredible to mm-hmm. probably think of just the path that's led you even to like this moment right here, sitting here talking about this. Absolutely. It is. It is. And it's, it's amazing. It is. Um, I say over and over when I speak that getting um, an incurable brain cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most people don't, don't quite understand why I say that at first, but it's moments like this. The people I get to meet and the stories I get to share. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. So for, for people who have not heard your story, mm-hmm. um, you were diagnosed at the age of 29, I yes. believe I saw. Can you bring us back to kind of what you want to share about that experience of of getting diagnosed with a brain tumor? Yeah, I will. I mean, I I guess right off the bat, it was not a diagnosis I expected. I think that's probably the case for everyone who gets this diagnosis. Um, Brain brain tumors or brain cancer, I think um, they sound so rare. Apart from when you're watching a movie where someone gets a terrible diagnosis, it's always a brain tumor. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, But I... I even I work in medicine. I work in um, a hospital, and even I really did not see many brain tumors. Mm-hmm. And so it was nothing on my mind, huh, which could be a pun. I guess yeah, it wasn't my mind somewhere. <laughs> uh, fun fact about yet. people yeah. with brain tumors: sometimes you get a little obsessed with puns. But <laughs> interesting. There you go. There you go. A little but fun fact. A little for fun you. fact. But uh, so I was. Yeah, I was 29. I'll take you back to how I was feeling, kind of what happened with this diagnosis. It was a very strange story. I'll start with that. So I ended up writing a whole book about it because it was like stranger than fiction, truly. Yeah. (laughs) So I was, when I was 29, I was in my third and very final year of residency. So I was training to be a doctor. I had gone through medical school in Chicago and I'd moved back to Minnesota to complete my training in internal medicine. And that in itself was just like a monumental achievement. I was so close. It was like, here's the finish line. I've worked forever in school to get to this point. And uh, despite all of that being very good and a lot of kind of good professional success and this finish line in sight, my personal life was really rocky. I was facing um, a marriage that was not working and I was going through a pretty severe depression myself. Yeah. And we can talk more about that later, but how that ties in is I just thought as I saw the end of the marriage coming, I thought I need to just do something for myself to kind of help me heal from this. And my training program offered the chance to do a global health elective. So you could go kind of a number of different places around the world, see a different type of medicine and study there for a month or two. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to go to a Chiang Mai, a city in Northern Thailand that fascinated me for many, many reasons. Um, and I thought this is just going to be a great solo sort of therapeutic journey for me. Mm-hmm. I was feeling great besides what was happening at home, but physically I felt great, right? Yeah. I was healthy. I'd been exercising. I was ready for a, a fantastic month of explorations. And when I was there, I was still feeling great. I was working in a hospital and some clinics in Chiang Mai And I started to have, about two weeks in, some really strange minor little symptoms. The the long story short is while I was there, I ended up diagnosing my own brain tumor (laughs) about a week before the trip was set to end. And so my my trip, my powerful solo healing journey ended with me as a patient at the hospital I had been working in at the time before I was rushed home for my first brain surgery. Wow. 
And is there any way to put into words what it's like to get diagnosed with a brain tumor? Hmm. Like what that moment is like? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's like, well, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> what for that moment sure. is like. Um, yeah. It's, uh, there's, I can't relate it to much of anything. It, it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I guess that maybe the closest thing I can relate it to is you is this just profound sense of of loss, like loss mm-hmm. of control, loss of almost like you lose yourself, like you lose a person you love. It's like within a moment I was not only losing my ground, my confidence in what my life would be and what it was, mm-hmm. but I was also losing this version, this naive, blissfully sort of unaware person I was before. Yeah. And so you're, you're diagnosed in Thailand Mm -hmm. with this brain tumor. Um, I've heard just through hearing your story, a really good thing. I mean, it was a big tumor that they found. Yeah. Yeah. And, And what, um, what did, what did the journey from there kind of look like as far as really understanding like the, the magnitude of the cancer or the severity of it. I know it's kind of measured in grades. Right. right. Yeah. Good question. So at first, while I was still in Thailand, I didn't know much other than it was a tumor of some kind. I didn't know if it would be benign, if it would be malignant. I really didn't know. Um, the way it was found was I was in a CT scanner there and I was the only physician in this particular imaging center. And so I asked to see my scan and I, all I could see was there's a giant tumor there. (laughs) Um, so I went to the hospital, as I said, and I was there a couple of nights before I could be kind of rushed home on a medical flight. Um, Mm. and I was really in a state of shock at that time. Some of my colleagues helped coordinate this flight, coordinate with my international medical insurance, which I put a plug out there. Definitely get it (laughs) (laughs) where you travel. Um, and I think I remained in somewhat of a shock. I mean, I knew my life would change. I knew I needed brain surgery. I think I was still in a bit of a state of, well, maybe this is just, I need a brain surgery. And then my life goes back to normal. Mm. Uh, it was not the case. So when I got back home, I had my first brain surgery and Shortly after, I was told this was a a grade two cancer. As you mentioned, um, cancers of the brain are graded or staged a little bit differently than others. So normally you'd hear like stage one through four, kind of with four being the worst for many cancers. With the brain, it's all in flux all the time and it's changing, which is good because there's new research coming out, but it's uh, sort of like grade one through grade four, roughly. And I was told I had a grade two. So they said, basically, this is okay. So I mean, it's not great. It's cancer. We can't cure it, but we can do another surgery and hopefully just get it all out. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And so they were able to remove the tumor. So they did. They removed the tumor. I had that surgery. (laughs) That was in 2020, peak of COVID. So I remember that surgery, my parents dropped me off at the hospital door where I had worked in before (laughs) and couldn't come in with me. So I go and I stay in the neuro ICU just on my own. (laughs) So you walked into the hospital by yourself getting brain surgery. Yeah. No visitors then. That was a wild day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that one, that second surgery gave me the upgrade to a grade three, which was not a very nice upgrade. (laughs) Right. And so then that led the way into me needing chemo and radiation. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And how long, how long do you, or have you done like a certain number of rounds of chemo? Yeah. So I did, I did all of that treatment, um, over the course of about a year back in 2020 through 2021. Okay. Um, and 
essentially what I live with is a cancer called anaplastic astrocytoma, which is a mouthful, but a, yeah. an incurable grade three or stage three type of brain cancer. Um, that is, as of this point, considered something you live with. It just becomes, if you're lucky, a chronic disease. Um, and you just sort of wait and expect it to come back someday. Mm. <laughs> Which is... Yeah. Not the, not the best feeling. Right. <laughs> so that's something I've learned right. to, in ways to li- learn to live with, but I'm always trying to learn how to live with that better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's something where I'm really fortunate now, and now I'm looking back on about three years since my treatment ended. Okay. I still get an MRI in my brain at least every three to four months, okay. and I probably will forever. Um, okay. But they've been stable, so I'm wow. lucky as I could ask for. Wow. So you're like essentially, you, so there's no cancer right now. Right. It's, it's, it's sort like of like the remission equivalent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Brain cancer is a weird one because they describe it as almost like you have little, like I imagine if you poured a little bit of sand in your brain, mm-hmm. there's like one clump that they can remove and then there's all these little tiny grains of cells that they can't get to. Got it. So it just depends when those little cell grains decide to start growing again. Okay. Um, how does it impact you like today? I mean, I know we're going to mm-hmm. get into... Um, I mean, that's a huge question. How is it impacting you today? I would imagine in some very profound ways. Mm-hmm. Physically, yeah. how does it impact you day to day? Yeah, it's a great question. I am extremely lucky in that it really doesn't limit me or impact me much day to day. The main thing is fatigue. I mean, I am tired mm-hmm. to a level that I didn't know was possible before all of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I found ways to cope with it, um, but a lot of it is your body doesn't sleep as well after brain surgery and you need a lot of sleep to prevent symptoms that could be physical, could be cognitive. So I need to stick to a very um, scheduled sort of sleep pattern. I need to be really aware of how much my body can handle because the other main physical issue that I can think of is, is this uh, um, sort of concept of like overstimulation, Mm -hmm. I guess sort of like sensory overload. So, Mm -hmm. Things like going to a loud concert with strobe lights or you know, going to um, a movie, like an action movie in the theater, things that I never even thought of before. Mm-hmm. Now I might take two days to like recover from my headache or to get enough rest after that kind of a thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you've probably, yeah, and you've probably learned a lot about, you're talking about sleep. Like if you mm-hmm. had to really hone in on like sleep hygiene and oh, yeah. <laughs> like learning how to really, really make that a, a focus. Oh, 100% because most of my life before cancer was studying for you know med school or well in med school and not sleeping much (laughs) during that time learning to live with you know working an overnight shift and then working a day shift and Mm -hmm. sleep could just come when it had to come and that is not my life at all anymore I've had to be really open and honest with my employers and Mm -hmm. apply for essentially disability accommodations to say I can't work overnight I have to have these very specific scheduled times when I can sleep yeah and so that's been a change but I'm really lucky in the sense that physically I mean I can still walk I can still write and read and see and drive and do and travel do all the things that I need to do and I want to do Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, um, I, mean, I know there's so many things that we can go into with this, I would imagine, but how would you say in, in that area of your life, this diagnosis has, has shifted things for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And 
The simplest answer is it shifted it completely in yeah. every possible way. Um, I think that before this diagnosis, this is sort of a cheesy answer, but I'll start with this. <laughs> we love cheesy on this podcast. Good, good. Cheese in all of its forms. <laughs> all it's great. Good. the cheese. <laughs> um, I would say that I was um, very much a type A person. Nothing wrong with that. I still am in many ways, but mm-hmm. I was so focused on this idea, as I kind of mentioned before, of a, of a goal. There's some sort of finish line you're working towards. Mm-hmm. And once you get there, things will be great, right? Yeah. This sort of, it's, it's magical. It's a fantasy, right? I think we me and a lot of us think of that in, in many things, not just with our career path, but our relationship goals, our whatever hobby we're working on, like we can perfect this. And then once you get there, things are great. Mm-hmm. And I think that is um, a really fast way to make yourself unhappy and to stay yes. unhappy. And that shifted for me very quickly when I came to realize that, I mean, my whole world was just crumbled down around me as far as I knew it. I thought I had this very clear path. Okay, I'm three months from graduating from my residency, then I'll have a job lined up and I'm going through a separation from my husband and I'll be single and I'll be healthy and single Mm -hmm. and a working woman and life is great, right? And all of those things (laughs) did not happen as planned. Um, I still have a path something like that um amazingly but it's been a path that has happened sort of more like through the through the woods through a lot of bumps mm-hmm. and turns and that's been a lot more fun yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so the not living always for what's next i'll yeah. be happy when things will be good when right. shifting away from that mentality Absolutely. a little bit, it sounds like, yeah. or maybe a lot of it. A lot of it. A lot of it. Yep. A lot of it. I mean, it was when is when, I guess I would say when is now, <laughs> now yeah. is it. That's and so true. yeah. Yeah. And I, I had forgotten that. I say a lot when I think of back before the diagnosis, I sort of think of like pre-cancer me and post-cancer me and mm-hmm. they're different people. One is gone, right? One is here and I am a much happier version of myself now. How does that change life when you're more invested in the present moment mm-hmm. versus kind of always striving for what's next? Yeah. I think that it changes it in what is important to me. Um, mm. If there are a list of things I can do that might lead to more success in my career, a little more money, right? Something that might've been really critically important to me before. Um, Or I could say, well, I could go and see my family or I could go on a walk with my dog or I could, I mean, maybe that's a bad example. There are some things of course I do in my career that I are very important to me, but I'm not going to just do everything on this sort of imaginary checklist that someone made for someone else who's not living the life I'm living. Mm. Um, I'm going to, decide what is really critically important to me so that if now this moment is my last moment on earth, I spent it doing something that I was passionate about. Yeah. I'm curious, did you, did you notice the things that are most important to you? Did you, did you find that that changed after getting diagnosed with a brain tumor? Yes. Like kind of the things that actually stick out as far as like, Oh, this is actually what really matters to me. Absolutely. Yep. I think that's, 
I think that health and in many different forms, it was important to me in a way. I mean, my, my career is based on health, but in a way that was sort of like, you know, as unfortunately Western medicine is, there's a lot of let's fix problems when they come about. Mm-hmm. And I think I went through a big shift towards, well, how can we sort of have a healing process within ourselves mm. that starts now? Um, so you'd ask sort of mentally, spiritually, physically, all those things in my mind are tied together. They yeah. are interwoven and they don't come apart. And I think we like to think about those things very separately. Yep. We talked a little bit earlier. I mean, I think that mind, body, you know, physical, mental, those terms are thrown out there, but, um, I don't think I ever considered what is a mind before mm. I had this diagnosis. Mm. So when people talked about like living mindfully or what does that even mean? (laughs) Right. Um, I thought about work. I thought about school. I thought about all those things that society tells us we need, like a successful relationship and a couple happy children and a perfect house and X, Y, Z. And um, when I sort of threw out that map somebody else made of my life and just started living it, I found so many interests I didn't know that I loved. Wow. I, yeah. And I'm so grateful for it. And I started writing. I started speaking. I became a more vulnerable version of myself than I ever was before. Mm-hmm. Pre-cancer, I would never have told someone I had depression while I was a medical student. I would never have said I was anxious or I was going through a relationship problem. Mm. I wouldn't have seen a therapist or talked about that openly on a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but now I know those things matter. And I think the things that that tie us and make us stronger are the things that um, break down those barriers someone else decided they needed to put up for us. Yes. And I would, I would venture to guess that experiencing something like getting diagnosed with a brain tumor, does it kind of force you into those things a little bit? Like, like into the vulnerability? Did you find that to be the case? For me it did, but it's been interesting because through this journey I've met a ton of people with cancer, with chronic illness, and it's definitely not that case for everyone. Sure. So I think, I mean, when I speak about this, it's it's definitely my unique experience. And for some people, it's like yeah. this, but not all. For me, when I got diagnosed and I was in that hospital bed in Thailand, I decided to make a blog that day. And that this was, maybe this was the brain tumor causing mm. me to think that this was a good idea because this was so unlike anything I'd ever done. I Again, as I said, I wouldn't have put my story out there publicly or shared it. But I wrote a blog, and I think blog number one talked about my separation and my depression and all of these things that I was facing. Mm. And I just put it out there, kind of expecting my family and friends to read it, but it made its way really publicly around the world. And I even had close friends and family tell me, I had no idea you were depressed. I had no idea you were going through these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just incredible to then not only be able to share that and feel sort of free, but to hear other people being more vulnerable with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Isn't that the powerful thing yeah. about being vulnerable, right? Yeah. Is it opens up the door for somebody else to do the same. It sure does. Yeah. You actually, you, I've made better relationships. Yeah. Um, I feel more confident and secure in who I am. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned the, um, well, I guess, first of all, I want to say that you brought up the blog, Mm -hmm. Um, elephant lotus brain tumor is is what it's called and a a resource for people to go check out. It looks like, is that something that you still contribute to today? It is. It is. Yes. Um, 
So this little blog that I started in part just, as, as I said, in that hospital bed, I was feeling open. I wanted to share the story. Um, and I think what partly why that happened was at the time, I didn't know, does this mean I'm, I mean, I'm dying, right? That's a, sort of where your brain goes, I think. And why a lot of people with a scary diagnosis, I think, become maybe more vulnerable or change mm-hmm. their lives drastically. It's like, okay, this is, this could be the last year or month of my life. I have no idea. And I thought I need to put my story out there. I need to say the things that are really important to me. Mm. Kind of this idea maybe of like leaving a legacy in a yeah. way. And so I started to write and the blog became almost like a diary, a journal for me. And, um, I kept writing every day, um, throughout the diagnosis after, before surgery, after surgeries. Um, it was a lot more often at the beginning, but I do still add to it now. And I've had this little tiny blog, which I made for my family and friends grow into something that I think I've had, you know, people read it from over a hundred countries. I've gotten to know people online from many of these countries, places I've never been Mm -hmm. who reach out and say, Hey, I'm going through a cancer diagnosis or, Hey, I, I'm separating from my husband and I don't know how to tell people and mm. what would you do? And I've made such amazing connections through this thing. It's the, it's the beautiful part of the world that we live in, right? The, yeah. the, the interconnectivity of it all. Uh, absolutely. Like that is spot on. Cause I can talk all day too about how much I can't stand social media. Yeah. How it's contributing to so many problems in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And yet I've like, like, prime example right here of ways that it can be used in such a beautiful way to yeah. bring people together and help people feel less alone. Yeah, it's very true. It's a blessing and a curse. Right? All at the same time. <laughs> yeah. All at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I know another thing that you wrote was uh, a book mm-hmm. called Difficult Gifts. I did. Um, what are what are difficult gifts? How do, how do you describe what those are? I love that question. <laughs> so when I was writing the blog, and, and I'll take a step back and say that writing was not something I really did before. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, maybe here new. and there I had written little poems, short stories, things for class, but this was not anything I knew I even had interest in. Mm-hmm. But it was somehow very therapeutic for me to just get this down on paper. And I found that I could process what I was going through so much better than I could in words or in having hard conversations with um, family and friends. Mm. I think it was a way to, to just get in touch with myself. And as I was writing this blog, I, um, started to get messages from readers saying, have you ever thought about writing a book? You should turn this into a book. Or I got messages saying like, this is great life advice. This is something I heard from my therapist and (laughs) it's blowing my mind. I mean, still does when I get these messages, it's wild, but, um, I thought a book, what? That's great. That's absolutely nuts. <laughs> I can't write a book. Um, but then as I was getting these messages and as I was writing, I had a scan that looked really bad. And I was told this may be a uh, grade four, something much um, mm. more critical. And I was told I could have a year to live. Um, and so I said, I, I need to get something out there. I need to get my story down. And I just was like sort of fueled with this extreme drive to, I don't know, sort of teach, maybe teach isn't the right word, but to, to share the lessons that this diagnosis gave me, Mm -hmm. um, with other people so that hopefully they could find a way to really embrace life without having to go through something so horrible. And so as I'm writing, I came across an interesting quote, um, 
by sort of a, he was a Benedictine monk who worked with interfaith dialogue between Christians and Buddhists. I won't go, it was beautiful, um, beautiful books and words by this person. And in one of his quotes, he talked, it's a long, long quote, but he mentioned something about a gift that can be difficult. Mm. And that just resonated with me. I thought, well, what is he, I mean, first, what is he talking about? (laughs) But a gift, like a gift is something we want, right? It's like a paradox. (laughs) It's a paradox. Yeah, I think so. Sounds right. It sounds fancy to say that. (laughs) Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll (laughs) go with that. Um, Yeah. And so it's like, well, a gift should be something fun and enjoyable and But as I read this again and again, I thought, well, maybe not. Maybe a gift is just something that we get. And a gift can be easy or a gift can be difficult. And a kind of a cheesy, again, another cheesy way I describe this, but is uh, um, at the time it was COVID, right? It was, I was writing this book. I was isolated in my apartment and I was thinking, what would be a difficult gift that I've gotten? And I thought Mm -hmm. someone got me like a 5,000 piece puzzle once. Like, yeah. This is terrible. Like, this is, I'll never do this. Right? Literally a Literally. difficult gift. Right? Very hard to, yeah. <laughs> a very difficult gift. <laughs> yeah. And then it's this pandemic and I'm stuck here alone getting chemo and I, I can't leave my apartment yeah. and I have this puzzle and I think, well, this actually is pretty great, right? Yeah. And that's a silly example, but it's like, for me, cancer was a really difficult life-changing gift. Yeah. Something I never, ever wanted to open or receive, but it's something that absolutely can change your life in so many ways if you let it in. Yeah. And that's the journey, right? Is learning how to let it in. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, was it hard to let in? Yes. Mm -hmm. Still is every day. Still is every day. Every day. It's a, it's a practice of, 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 um, practice of learning to live with and live in spite of Mm -hmm. at the same time. You talked a little bit previously about really working on being mind, like kind of redefining what mindfulness means to you Mm -hmm. and and being mindful and living mindfully. And and I totally agree that that word can get so thrown around out there that sometimes we're like, we're all talking about a different thing kind of when we're, when we're hearing the word mindfulness. Um, But, but to you, I guess, what have, what does it mean to you? To, yeah. to show up in a, in a mindful way in your life. I love that. And you're absolutely right. It is, it's a very hard word to define. And I think it, it's even maybe harder these days because it's like such this hot buzzword that's everywhere and it's used differently. Yeah. Um, for me, to be mindful is to just try and focus on being present. Mm. Um, I think that at the beginning of my journey with sort of mindfulness, with a different spirituality with a different mindset than I was in before. I thought maybe mindfulness is sort of this hippy dippy thing where I have to like sit on a meditation cushion yeah. and, and chant and that it's okay. I've done it here and there and it can be fun, sure. <laughs> but I'm not very good at it. And yeah. I, I don't know that it fully resonates with me. So to me, it's like how I, I started to read and learn more about like just mindful moments. How can I take like right now we are recording a podcast. Yeah. How can I, be here and only here. Even when we're talking about things that happened in the past or that might change my future Mm. to be looking at you and talking to you and just realizing this is great. This is the gift. Mm -hmm. That's mindfulness. Yes. Which I, which I'm finding in like, it takes a, um, 
like the mo the moment doesn't always have like the dopamine hit Mm-mm. right that like i think sometimes a lot of us are after yeah it's like always you know just kind of almost going back to what we were talking mm-hmm. about with that what's next what's going to be big right. what's going to be great right. what's you know and i mean gosh we live we have these phones in our hands that are constantly yeah. pulling us away from the moment and yeah the present moment it's like there's not a there's not that that high all the time in the moment, but there's like, it's like a different kind of like grounded energy. I feel Mm -hmm. like that we can tap into in the moment. That's much more subtle. I love that. Yes. Yes. And that makes my mind go to so many places. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but you're right. There's not, I think when we think about maybe mindfulness or this, yeah, this concept of like you do something the right way yeah, or the way you're taught will change your life. You expect an immediate, dopamine hit you expect to feel like i just won the lottery my whole life has changed Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i don't think that is the truth in any way um and i think a little bit about how my own sort of spiritual journey and thoughts play into this too and i'm going to take us back to cheese (laughs) as an example we should you know what i really should have had a cheese you should have what were you thinking right right. next time (laughs) i will have uh, a full array of cheese in front of you so this goes back to what something i read um the dalai lama said once and he wasn't using cheese in this example but some other sort of delicious food substance and um the idea is that if you have too little or too much of something it's bad both sides right Mm. you don't think that you think like wow i love cheese i might think this right i want a plate of cheese in front of me and I'm going to love it. And the more, the better. Right. But if you have like, if I just ate cheese from now through the rest of my life, I would probably hate cheese. Right, right. This is the dumbest example, but it's like, no, I would not be a fan. But I think that's the kind of with anything in this like dopamine hit, this like having a mindful moment and expecting it to be the best moment of all time. If that were the case with every single moment, how dull would our life be? That's so true. Mm -hmm. That's so true. It's more that kind of complexity in the array of the human experience yeah. that is more what we're for sure tapping into. Yeah. Are there? God, no. All I can think about is cheese now. <laughs> Sorry. Like, how could I? I do this. Weave cheese into this. Um. What? what and you talked a little bit about maybe for you, it's not necessarily sitting down on a meditation mm-hmm. cushion. Um. What What are the tools that you? utilize to kind of cultivate that relationship with the present moment great question so sometimes i do sit and try and formally meditate but for the most part um if i say i'm going to do that and i don't i just feel guilty and resentful Mm -hmm. and so trying to incorporate mindful moments into things that i already do in my life are setting myself up i think for more success i've found and so for me it's like washing the dishes something really simple Can I just be washing the dishes and like feel the water? Can I be taking a shower and I can stand there? And for me, that brings me back to post brain surgery. And I literally couldn't stand in a shower. Mm. And I think this is magical. Mm -hmm. This is something I maybe could have had taken away from me. Um, Things like going to work and it's Monday morning. And I know for a long time, um, like everyone else, I complain about going to work on Monday morning, right? And Mm -hmm. I remember very vividly about a week after brain surgery, I was in my apartment complex getting in the elevator and it was a Monday and everyone around me was just whining about how upset they were to be going down to the parking garage to go to work on Monday morning. And all I could think was, how lucky would I be if I could go back to work on a Monday morning? 
right? And yeah. so now on Monday mornings or when I'm driving to work, and now my mind, I'm, I'm not this, I'm not perfect. I'm definitely right. still practicing. I'm still whining and I'm like, oh my God, I have to go back to work and I don't want to do this. But if I can get my mind to circle back to be yeah. mindful, this is happening. I'm alive. I'm able to do these things. Yeah. That's, that's healing for me. How, so you, so you still work mm-hmm. as a hospitalist. I do. As a, as a physician. Yes. You're at Regions. Mm-hmm. How has this shifted the way that you show up for your patients? Mm. It has, I think it has made me a much better provider. I definitely don't think people have to go through something this traumatic to be a really good provider. Yeah. Um, but for me, it has really changed how I show up for my patients and it helps me to understand a little bit of what it's like to be in their shoes. Yeah. Um, I think that... I think back on a number of patients I worked with before and after and how how many things are not described well to patients um, because hmm. I think they become so routine. Like I'll give an example that's a little bit in my book, but when I think about when I was a patient in Thailand, I knew because I work in the hospital that someone would come in and take my blood pressure and mm-hmm. my vital signs every couple hours and wake me up from sleep to do that. And that's just routine. I knew that someone would come in and stick a needle in me and draw some labs. And no one, you know, as people were coming in to do these things, nothing was described very well. And unfortunately, that's that's the case even if there's not a language barrier a lot mm-hmm. of the time because those things are really commonplace to us. I think, you know, I, I was always the type of provider who would go in and update my patient if they had a new horrible diagnosis or, or a good diagnosis or if they needed a new treatment and we'd talk it through. But little mm-hmm. kind of routine tasks, I don't think I, I spent so much time describing. Yeah. But it's easy to forget when that's your day-to-day that to a patient, getting a blood draw or seeing an unfamiliar number on the blood pressure monitor is disconcerting. Totally. And so I think to, to take the time to actually sit down and explain things to my patients, I just, I try to do that more and I try to do that more thoroughly. Mm. I also, um, with a lot of my patients, I share the health journeys that I've been through. Mm-hmm. It's not always appropriate, but I think that um, when I find a patient who I think might relate or um, might help them in their own situation, I do share. And that's yeah. been really a powerful thing. I would venture to guess, not being in your shoes, of course, that a diagnosis like what you've been given makes you think about death. Sure does. <laughs> Is that true? Yes, it sure does. Yeah. And yes, and um, I'm really glad that it does. Say more about that. Yeah. Um, I thought about death before my diagnosis in the sense that I work in medicine and I see death, unfortunately, more times than I'd like to. Um, But I don't think I really ever thought about the fact that it also would apply to me, that I too am a mortal person. And I, like I think many of us, think I have, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 years to do what I want to do and I'm going to plan this perfect checklist of my life based on that assumption. Um, And despite having seen that that is not always the way things go in my job, I didn't think about it for myself. And I say now, when someone told me that I was dying, that was truly the day I started living. Hmm. To 
understand that this could all go away instantly yeah. um, is it changes it changes everything. I bet. Mm-hmm. Um, does it? I'm trying to figure out how to ask this. Yeah. Does it make you think about something greater than yourself? Does it make you think about God? Hmm. That's a great question. I think for me, it makes me think about, yes, something greater than myself. Um, I think that to me, my spirituality is a, um, hard to define, Sure. but I do think whether it's God, whether it's Nirvana, heaven, Buddha, all of whatever, whatever is your idea, energy, you know, Molecules colliding. I don't care. For sure. For sure. <laughs> I think though that yes, there there is um, something. There's something powerful now to me in thinking about. Okay, so I'm I will die, and and knowing that that is a fact, not something that can be changed, no matter how great medicine gets or right. how healthy I try and make myself. Right, that will happen. Yeah. Um, thinking about the fact that. I am just a mortal human as we all are. And we all share this fact mm-hmm. that we will die mm-hmm. on one way. Yes. It gets me thinking about what is the bigger picture? What else, what else is there? What comes next? But another way it brings me back just here to earth and how maybe these concepts of God and heaven and spirituality are just with us now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe those things are found in the present moment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. That bite of cheese. <laughs> that bite of cheese. Yeah. It's heaven right there. Cause that, yeah. right. Cause that's a, that's a different way to look at it. Right. Yeah. Or, or maybe different than what a lot of us are raised around. Yeah. That maybe isn't, maybe it's not this thing that we're, and it, you know, and, and, and again, I don't want to, I know everybody tunes into this podcast with differing views on all this and we hold space for all that. And, you know, yeah, what if it's not looked at as something that we're waiting for at the end of the road, but it's something that we can access yes. in, in the present moment Absolutely. through the moment. Maybe that's kind of where that, whatever we want to call it, God, the universe, yeah. the cosmos, whatever that is. Maybe right. it's, maybe it's right there in front of us all, all along. I love that. Yep. And I think that's, that's hitting it right on the head with, with my views is that there it's, it's harder to summarize, I think. Um, yeah. but it is. Yeah, there's some sort of a magic in thinking that there's not a finish line. There's Mm. just now. Yes. Mm. And you've been pretty open that Buddhism has been something that's really resonated for you. It has, yeah. Yeah, I was raised um, Catholic. And a a lot of my extended family is Catholic. And when I first wrote about a lot of my more Eastern spiritual beliefs, that didn't always go so well at the beginning. Yeah. I think the more that I learn and study about various spiritualities or religion, the more I realize, or the more I believe, there is not one right answer. There are a lot of different words and thoughts to describe a feeling Mm. or a situation that we all sort of hope for. And I personally believe that that is this idea of happiness, of peace and happiness and compassion for all of us. Yeah. And that's, I think, in my mind, the the goal. And religion, uh, in it, all of its various ways, or spirituality sort of tries to get at that. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I just, I resonated in part with a lot of the Buddhist ideas because a lot of those ideas are um, have a foundation that 
fits well with science. Mm-hmm. Um, the first book I ever read that I brought with me to Thailand that actually hit me on the head in a bookstore and I knew I had to read it. <laughs> Literally hit you on the head. <laughs> Literally hit me on the head. No way. That's, That's a, how you know. That was a day. That was how I knew. <laughs> was about um, the intersection of science and spirituality by the Dalai Lama. Wow. Um, it's called The Universe in a Single Atom. Mm. fantastic book literally fell off a shelf hit me right in the head mm. right where this tumor was found whoa yeah that was something whoa <laughs> but, was that um, before or after you were diagnosed before wow mm-hmm. it hit me on the head there in a bookstore here in minnesota and i took that book with me to thailand oh my gosh. and it yeah gives me chills thinking about it yeah. but that's one of those things where i just as i was reading it and i heard the dalai lama of all people talking about how if something that's in Buddhist or Eastern spirituality um, that's been written is proven sort of to be not possible by science, then we need to change our views. Mm -hmm. And something about that was really powerful to me because at heart I am, I mean, I practice Western medicine. I'm a scientific minded person, Mm -hmm. but I also needed some spirituality in my life that fit with what I was going through in my diagnosis Mm -hmm. because realizing that you're mortal and you're dying in your 20s when you're healthy and sort of doing all the right things, so mm-hmm. to speak, mm-hmm. I think um, shifted my mindset to think there's got to be, there's just got to be something more, something I can't explain yet. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that, it, and, it, and what I almost hear from, from you is, I, I think that's, it, I think it's a beautiful place to be at with that to almost say, gosh, it just feels like there's something else out there. And yet I don't necessarily have the words for it mm-hmm. or I don't fully know how to describe it. I'm still kind of formulating what that is, but it's a like, like I, allowing people to be at a place with their spiritual path of not knowing, I think is okay. Yeah. Right. And, it's a good place. And, and it, it's a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good place. It's a good place for sure. And I think the more that I read and studied again different cultures, different spiritualities. The more I realized, one, there's so little I don't know, and two, how much more peaceful would my life be if I just said all of these things could be true and could be right, yes. than to pick one. And I have always felt it's it's at least to me it's always felt like when you when you hear people talk about all the different spiritual beliefs, all the different religions, it feels like we're all talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it? Yeah. At least in my opinion, like I, it feels like we're all talking about the same thing. And yet it's like all these different manifestations of the human mind trying to make sense of this thing that is just so incredibly grand and almost like beyond the comprehension of what our mind can grasp. Yes. Yes. I think that is, I think absolutely. I feel that way too. And there's something, um, there's something similar, I think with talking about death to go mm-hmm. a little bit back to that subject not thinking about it from a spiritual or religious standpoint, but just this this concept of death is something so ominous and so big and talked about in so many ways mm-hmm. that I think we don't like to, we have our one kind of limited view of it, perhaps. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it or bring it up at the dinner table no. or ask what our friends think about it, which I find really interesting the more and more that I think and talk about death because... Yeah. It is the one commonality we all have, medically speaking, <laughs> yeah. right? I don't know what's going to happen to you medically, but I, I know you'll die, yep. as I will. Yep. 
And the fact that that is something kind of like spirituality, just in the sense that we don't want to talk about it <laughs> necessarily, mm-hmm. as, is fascinating to me. Being faced with your mortality, maybe in a more abrupt way than the rest of us. What's um, what's the biggest thing that you're that you're taking away from that, kind of currently? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a hard question, but a great one. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess a lot of it is, again, this idea of living in the present. Comes back um, to the moment. Comes back to the moment. It comes back to. Time is not guaranteed. Um, It comes back for me to being this sort of type A person with a checklist Mm -hmm. to, to remind myself that the end of that checklist or that finish line for all of us is dying. And so what is the rush? Mm. Why can't we take a step back and really enjoy what's happening right now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Enjoy the people around us. Yeah. Enjoy the moments around us. Right. Um, as we kind of start to, to wind down here a little bit, what do you, you know, to ask you, how has this impacted your mental health? I would, I would imagine a pretty obvious question has, I would imagine it has a huge impact. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what do you do day in and day out to take care of you from a, a mental health standpoint? And I know obviously talking about how it's all connected, but, Mm -hmm. um, are there things that really help you that are kind of in that mental health toolkit? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think that I do, um, I do a lot. I try to do a lot to take care of my mental health just as I would my physical health. Yeah. Uh, again, because I do, I do think that they're all one. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, I, I see a therapist. I find that very helpful. I think mm-hmm. talking about, how you're feeling and processing it is, is key. Um, for me, part of my therapy is writing is just finding a process to explore how I'm feeling in a vulnerable way. It doesn't have to be writing that I share with somebody else, but writing that just lets me process through what's going on. Um, my mental health on the whole, if you can believe this, actually got significantly better after my diagnosis. Wow. Uh-huh. Um, I'm a much happier person now. Isn't uh, that it? So, yeah. Yeah. So, which takes me back to my question. I should have probably clarified uh, on that a little bit. So that uh-huh. that's, yeah. it, it's, it's impacted bad. it, but it's, in a, it's it impacted, almost, almost made it better. A very positive impact for sure. Amazing. And And I think some people, uh, when that, even from the beginning, from the beginning of this diagnosis, I told people I'm... I am sort of, I'm in a happier place. And I think people thought, she's is she crazy? What's, what is she talking about? How can yeah. she be happier? Um, but actually when my diagnosis happened and I was in Thailand, I had asked for a monk to come and talk with me um, before I left to go back to the U.S. for surgery. There aren't, if you've ever been in the hospital, there's a lot of, like, you can ask for a chaplain or sort of a, someone to mm-hmm. come and give some spiritual support. There aren't a lot of priests or other types of chaplains in um, yeah. Thailand, but there are a lot of monks. So my friends had a monk come and sit by me at my hospital bed and I'm crying, I'm sobbing, I'm trying to process what's happening. And the monk says to me, you know, what are you sad about? <laughs> and I'm kind of laughing at him like, what are you, what you, are you did you not listen to everything yeah. I just said? And he tells me illness and death are a natural part of life. It's that simple. Mm. And I, it sort of awoke something in me like, oh, duh. 
Well, guess, of course they are, right? Mm. <laughs> um, and he goes on and he says, do not worry, calm the mind. Mm. That was pretty powerful. Um, and, and then I start crying again. And he kind of, he again, takes me back to like, well, why are you crying? And as I thought about it right then from the beginning, I said, I don't actually think I'm crying about my own diagnosis. I know that it is what it is mm-hmm. and I can handle it. I said, I'm crying because of all of the people I will leave behind, of mm-hmm. all of the people that I will make sad. Mm-hmm. And I think that many people living with an illness can probably relate to this, um, that we can kind of, we are, we are resilient people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get through a lot, but it, uh, when there are other factors, other people involved, it makes it more challenging. Um, and the monk said to me, he said, just find a way to be happy and share that happiness with your loved ones. They will be fine. Um, and that lesson, like as, as simple as that is, something just sort of clicked in my mind and it's like, well, yeah, I could go home and I could curl up in bed in the fetal position and whine about why did this happen to me? Mm -hmm. And that would probably make everyone around me even more miserable. (laughs) Mm. Um, And so I also thought, if I have a limited life here left to live, I'd rather be having fun. And something about that whole mindset change really did make me feel happy. It made me feel like I finally had the power. I could say yes to things, but I could also say no. And I don't know that I had that power before. I didn't Mm -hmm. feel like I did. And I could live my life really the way that I chose to live it and find that happiness and share it. And that was the tool. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm so grateful that you shared it with us today. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And what a a gift to be able to sit down with you. And um, just thanks for all the ways that you're that you're showing up there out there in the world and and um as we as we wrap up i if, if, if there's kind of i keep doing this in this interview which i always hate doing like coming back to one thing because mm-hmm. i know that's not you know representative of the human experience but if there's a nugget that you hope people take away from this conversation what is it yeah oh, it's so hard but i my mind goes right to just this sense of Enjoy the small things. Enjoy the small moments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the small moments. Simple as that. Be here, right? Yep. Isn't it amazing how simple that sounds? Yep. Just, yep. Well, take what serves, leave the rest. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and eat cheese while you're doing it. And eat it. cheese. <laughs> that's but what not I'm too taking, much. That's <laughs> what I'm taking away from this. Is eat a lot of cheese. Absolutely. Yeah, but not too much. <laughs> um, so great to meet you. And um, thank, thank you. you so much. So great to meet you. Thanks for sharing what you do. This is uplifting. Also, just a reminder that this podcast is not meant to replace work with a therapist. And so if you feel you need it, I encourage you to reach out to a trained mental health professional. All right, we'll talk soon.